Welcome to Silently Bleeding, Hope for the Pastor's Wife. I'm your host, Jan McIntyre. Today, Nagme Panahi is back with us again on our podcast for part two of Nagme's story. Let's jump right in. Uh, by God's infinite wisdom, he, which at the, at at that point, I was actually mad at God for allowing him to do that. Uh, he had a, he somehow had a smuggled phone with internet uh, the last year of his imprisonment. So two and a half years into it. And from that, he could so- check my social media. He could get on Skype and contact me. And um, that's when I realized that this man has not changed. He was belittling me. He was saying, you know, don't think people are clapping for you because I was now speaking at, I don't know, uh, 30,000 person churches. I was sharing my testimony, asking for help. I was uh, speaking at mega churches, anyone who would listen. And um, and so he he saw that I was you know, meeting with presidents and Trump and Obama and all of that. So he said, just so that you know, they're clapping for me. They're not clapping for you. You're nothing special. You're worthless. And so mm-hmm. I, I couldn't understand, like, I'm trying to get you out of prison. Why are you putting me down? It's that's when the conflict started in me. Like, like why? Because at that point, again, I didn't know it was abuse. I didn't know that he was threatened by my independence, that he was feeling like he was losing control over me because now I had become a different person. When Saeed went to prison, I was a shell of a person. My relationship with God was not good because I had felt that God was behind this. Uh, Saeed had used Proverbs 31 where it says, you know, her husband's pleased with her. So I felt like if my husband's not pleased with me, God is not pleased with me. But if my husband is pleased with me, then God is pleased with me. And I have to have this quiet spirit and I have to be Proverbs 31. And he was never pleased. So I was always, it's like a slavery. You're always trying to please someone who's never happy. Um, And so, uh, yeah, so he, uh, I really correlated. It's, it was like God and then my husband and me, and he was, based on my theology at that time, my connection with God, if somehow he was not happy and I was in a way like disrespectful or disobedient, then God was mad at me. So that kind of God didn't, I didn't want to really communicate with him, even though I'd loved him. I had went to Iran as a missionary. I adored Jesus. There had been a coldness that had entered my heart towards God uh, because of spiritual abuse. And so uh, he started calling me names from inside prison walls and he he could see I was getting famous and he was putting me down and I couldn't understand it. That was, there was a conflict inside of me. And, um, and so I was traveling quite a bit. Um, and my first boundary with him was actually, I was speaking at a woman's conference in Joshua Springs, California, and, uh, someone had given me a ring uh, their wedding ring. Some, her husband had given after 20 years, it was a diamond ring. And long story short, I was just crying. Like God was like, you are mine. You belong to me. You're my bride. Like all of this, like word of God, just washing over me of how I, precious I was to him, how special I was to him. And I was just like beside myself. And so my first boundary was, uh, Said called again and he was really mean to me. You're worthless. You're this. And my boundary was, if you can't talk to me, nicely I won't talk to you like if you're gonna you know and so that was my first boundary I didn't know I was drawing boundaries but I guess that was it um and so by the time yeah not not me that is something somebody right now needs to hear yeah 
She just said drawing boundaries. It does make a difference. Go ahead. Yeah, boundaries is what sets you free. And it's very biblical. And it's actually to, it gives that opportunity for that person to repent. Because I've, I I noticed as I will share my testimony, the more boundaries I learned about boundaries, and the more boundaries I drew, the more I could see where our marriage was headed. Uh, people and narcissistic and abusive people don't do well with boundaries. And uh, they actually really act up and they they really, you know, it actually becomes dangerous when let's say a woman's files for divorce or legal separation, because that's a boundary that's, you know, and so they start actually, actually acting very dangerous, but I didn't even know what boundaries were. But at that time I said, after finding God speaking his worth into me, I said, if you're not going to be nice, I can't talk to you. And so interesting enough, it's like a drug addiction, that kind of attachment. I can't even say it's love. It's kind of like the Stockholm syndrome. There's an attachment Interesting enough, I cut him off. I said, don't call me if you can't be nice. And he actually didn't call me again, ever. (laughs) That was his last phone call to me. (laughs) Um, But interesting enough, um, I was falling apart by not talking to him. I had to stop because I had a cell phone inside of the prison. Like I, it was like coming off of drugs. I had to stop myself from wanting to call him because even though I had said, don't call me if you're not nice, every fiber of my being wanted to call him. And so uh, but so by the time I went to North Carolina to speak at a pretty, like a mega church with like five campuses, I was sharing about Saeed, uh, by that time I was a wreck because I hadn't talked to Saeed for a week, you know, and I was beside myself. I was broken. It was like, I wasn't getting the drug of being that attachment that I had with Saeed. And so I, I, I remember, uh, we, I, I spoke at their Sunday services And then they had a prayer night that Sunday. And after prayer, the pastor and his wife took me out to like dinner. And then they were going to drop me off at my hotel for me to catch an airplane, like a six in the morning was a crazy early. I had to wake up at three. And so we were going to have a quick dinner so I could go to bed. And so I was so beside myself about what was happening with my not connecting with Saeed, but he was texting me on Skype. Like you make me sick. He was showing like, throw up things and just mean stuff, but I wasn't responding. And so for the first time I shared to this pastor, I said, I don't understand this. I'm trying to get him out. He has internet. So confusing. I can't tell the world that he has internet. I was told, I told ACLJ and I told our government, I was told by my lawyers at ACLJ, if anyone finds out he has internet, he has a phone, his life could be in danger. The Iranian government could go after him. So it's not like people say, you know, like Franklin Graham and others have said, you lied. Well, I couldn't go on media and say, my husband has a cell phone inside of the Iranian prison, you know? So it was a secret that I had to keep. And so, and then, so when the stuff came out, people were like, confused because they don't know I've been communicating with them. Like, how is she saying he's abusive when there's been no communication for three and a half years, you know, but there was communication for a year. And so I showed this pastor Saeed's text. I'm like, why is he so mean to me? I don't get it. I just, from the beginning, he's never thought I was pretty. He's always, you know, all of this. I don't get it. I'm trying to get him out. I've been the best wife. Like this time in Dubai, I thought maybe when he beat me, I had said, who cares? I was kind of a little sassy. This time I was shutting my mouth because he's in prison. I feel bad for him. I am being submissive. I'm being kind. I'm being gentle. Like it's not me. I know it's not me because I'm biting my tongue. No matter how much he's like beating me up with his words, I'm just being calm. 
the meanest thing I told him was, if you can't be nice to me, don't call me. That was probably the meanest thing I told him in our communications. So I knew it wasn't me. And, and so I couldn't understand why he was so mean. And this pastor said, I'm not, it was pastor, Do- Dr. Uh, David Chadwick and North Carolina. He had, a, I think he still has a church there, but he said, you know, I'm not just a pastor. I'm, I'm a psychologist. Mm-hmm. I have a doctorate in psychologist. And he, he gave me my diagnosis. He said, you're an abused wife. So, but he, Said was his hero. He didn't know what to do with it. He said, we got to go. You have an early flight. I have a radio appointment, a radio interview tomorrow. Bye. Put me on my, they took me to the hotel, dropped me off. And of course, like any diagnosis, when you get, you Google it. <laughs> so I Googled abused wife and all this stuff came out and there was checklists. I think I saw the L- Leslie Vernick has a really good checklist. Um, and I was like, wow, someone's been like, in my marriage, like every box was like, wow, wow. I didn't know like the silent treatment was a form of abuse. I didn't know there was verbal abuse. I didn't know there was emotional abuse. I didn't know there was a spiritual abuse. So I, I learned as I learned, it's kind of like you read on the internet, you have cancer. You're like, I was like, this is not just a normal marriage issue. This is a huge, like, I was freaking out because that my diagnosis was given. I was looking in the internet and finding out really horrible things, which for me, it meant that it could be the end of my marriage. It could be that this was not fixable. Uh, I didn't think I could ever end it, but I, it just seemed like if this is cancer, this is not, I can't fix it with Tylenol. This has got to get chemo treatment. And so I uh, got on the airplane. I didn't sleep all night, woke up at, I mean, I was awake all night, got onto the airplane. People recognized me on the airplane. They thought I was crying about Saeed, but I was crying over the abuse that had washed, like realizing then I had a layover in Texas. I opened my computer. I'm very transparent person. Like what I feel if I'm mad at you, I have to tell you I'm mad at you. Like, so I got on my computer and I told people that I felt like they needed to know. It was about 200 people that were trusted people. If I had anxiety or if something personal was happening with me and the kids, I would tell them that it would never get to the news. Like it was never shared outside of that group. But there were people that were like the leaders in in uh, doing the prayer rallies, doing they were the organizers, they were the doers of the Safe Said movement. So I feel like they really love Said. They're not going to hate him if whatever I say. They they really love Said, and they're still going to because I, in my email I said I love him. I, I and I don't want anyone's mind to be messed up about him. But I need prayer. Like so um, so I thought these are people that have really invested in this safe side movement, pray for sight. And there are people I can trust. It's never leaked anywhere. I wasn't actually even thinking that it would ever leak. Uh, and then I closed my laptop. I got on the airplane. I think it's like a three hour flight, four hour flight to Boise. And I, cu- I, I turned my phone on and it's like 10 phone calls from Franklin Graham, a voice message from Franklin, like 20 phone calls from my lawyers at ACLJ, like, text messages galore like hundreds of and I'm like what happened (laughs) like what happened it got to the media by the time I landed it it's I had um Christianity Today wanting uh wanting an interview I had Washington Post I had um NPR I had like big like Reuters I had big news like what happened and um so, yeah, so I, I went to my pastor's house and it just journey started from there. I was 
told not to say anything. I kind of did a generic statement of I'm going through a lot. I was told to say I was crazy. I was on medication. That's why I wrote it. And I said, didn't they say you need to tell people you're mentally ill? Yeah. That you're on heavy medication. I said, actually, I think I'm just starting to get clarity for the first (laughs) time. I don't think I'm mentally ill. I've never been on medication for mental illness. And so uh, I think at that time, Said had called from, I don't know, maybe prison. Because one of the things abusers say is that uh, the person they're abusing is mentally ill. It's like a number one, she's crazy. Uh, I'm thinking maybe Said had gotten a hold of him and said she's crazy, you know. I don't know. But yeah, I was told to say I'm mentally ill. I was under a lot of stress when I wrote that. It's not true. And I said, I can't say it's not true. I'm literally starting to see what my marriage is starting to make sense. So I couldn't say it wasn't true. So we just sent a generic statement for the media and I just kind of went in a shell and uh, my journey of the wilderness, Hosea two verses 14 through 16, I will lure her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her there. And my journey of wilderness started seven years ago. And um, I feel like I'm still in it. It's been an amazing beautiful, refreshing journey with Jesus where um, all brokenness is healed. Now, you know, we think uh, redemption, you know, because in that Hosea 2, verse 14 through 16, it says, I will give her vineyards back. It talks about she will sing to me as she did in the days of her youth when she was released from her captivity from Egypt. Uh, People think sometimes redemption looks like a saved marriage. It wasn't, you know, uh, when my husband came out of prison, he was very angry that the abuse stuff had come out. He, uh, I said, I want to work it out with you. Uh, I, you just need to get help because it wasn't just the physical, emotional, all of all of the abuse. There was porn addiction. There was an actual adultery. He had confessed to, to Franklin Graham and others. So he had cheated on me throughout our marriage. So I had every right to walk away, but I didn't want to. Uh, it's everything I worked with was our family to get hold. And my Kids were so confused. Daddy's out. Why aren't we together? Like that was the most painful part of the journey was my kids. So I wanted it to work, but I drew more boundaries. And I said, um, we're going to be legally separated. Uh, I don't feel safe around you because um, when he did get released out of prison, a few months after the email came out, uh, I tried to contact him because the media, the entire media was at my house like waiting for that phone call and he never called. <laughs> and and then you see my friend is like, oh, he just called Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham writes a post, Saeed just called me. Jay Sekulo just made a post. Oh, Saeed just called me. Greg Laurie, whose movie just came out, Saeed just called me. Like, I'm like embarrassed. Like, wow, the media is here to see a phone call between this man and his wife. And it's not not even his children. So I finally got his phone number from his sister in Germany uh, where he was being evaluated. And uh, he, he, I got really scared because he was threatening me. He was threatening to come take the kids, take him back to Iran, come after me. And I, I knew at that point because he had beat me to near death experience. And after that, I don't know if we talked about that. I really never allow, I never uh, let it get that far. I was walking on eggshells and I was, completely submissive. Uh, so I, yes, I was always afraid for my life, um, but I never got let it get that far where I could die. I would always just diffuse any anger or anything. 
So, yeah, so I was afraid. I asked the lawyer, I said, I don't want to divorce him. And they said, you really need to file. If he gets to Boise, you need to file for a protection order because he can come and grab the kids and take him back to Iran, which was crazy that he was even saying that. And uh, he even told the court psychologist, I'm going to take the kids back to Iran, which gave me, which the court said I needed to have the passports and I needed to, you know, have a legal custody of the kids. So in, in my mind, I'm thinking you just suffered as in three and a half years in a, in a prison, you're going to take our kids there where I have no access. I have no rights as a woman. Women don't have get custody of children in the Middle East. You have to ask permission to even leave the country yourself. Uh, children are property of men. Uh, a woman can only have her child as long as she's breastfeeding him. The moment the breastfeeding of the child is over, then the child belongs to the father. And the mom, the father can just say, bye, I'm done with you. I'm getting another wife. And the wife is out, no custody. So I was beside myself. I knew if he took the kids back to Iran, I had just uh, got him out of that prison. I chased the Iranian president in New York trying to get my husband out. They didn't like me. They were sending me death threats. There's no way I can even try to go back to Iran. So um, my lawyer had said, if he ever comes back to Boise, file for a legal separation. And because it's going to keep the kids in the States and where they're at and also protection order. So he can't just grab the kids and take him. So long story short, I just, uh, he, uh, he came. So when he was released, I had to file for those. And I told him, I said, I, I'm separated from you, but I want our marriage to work. So if you get help on these issues, I'm here for you. Like everything's forgiven, the adultery, the, everything's forgiven. But uh, the most devastating, the next devastating thing happened. The moment I did that, he filed for divorce. He actually, uh, it's interesting. The message he sent me when he filed was you're free now, which at that time, it didn't feel like that he had somehow seen me bound. At that time, it didn't feel like freedom. It felt like violence. Like the Bible's like, that's cruelty for a husband to divorce his wife. For me, it felt cruel because I had spent so many years of my life. I'd spent my youth and I was turning 40 when my divorce became final. Uh, and my youth, 20s, 30s, and now 40 was spent on this relationship. I'd given up everything. Uh, he'd been the only man I've ever been with to this day. I haven't dated and for him to just walk away, like was devastating. And, um, and then he moved in with the girl from our house church that he had been in a relationship with. He brought her to America, like within three months because of the connection he had with our government, he was able to bring her and they lived together. And I was just devastated. And then the journey of the wilderness has been so good. It, it has not been a restored marriage, but it's been so good. And that's why I think as Christians, we have that, whether we're married or divorced, kid, no kid, we've lost the loved one, sickness, no sickness, like we can be content because we have this amazing bridegroom, we have this amazing husband, whether we're married or not, we have this amazing father, I just lost my father a few years ago to COVID, whether we have a father or not, we have this amazing love that's poured into us and it's refreshing us bringing us back to the, the days of our youth when we're dancing and rejoicing. And he has really revived me with his words, Psalm 119, which talks about how his word is just refreshment. Um, I'm just, I, I, for me, there's been redemption in my life. I'm just, uh, I've seen, I've helped, God has used me to help women who've come out of domestic abuse that have been 
uh, that have worked in the White House have been appointed as advisors for domestic abuse. And a woman that I would have never thought would get that position, they were going through their own storms. And other women that I've uh, helped that I've seen make my friend Miriam Ibrahim came out of domestic abuse. And uh, I didn't know when, when I helped her, she was a, such a broken person. But years later, as she found her wings in the Lord and, you know, uh, she, law of Sudan was recently changed uh, that uh, Christians can no longer be killed. Um, people who convert to Christianity from Islam can no longer be be imprisoned or killed um, because of her. She had been imprisoned in Sudan because of her Christian faith, but because of her coming out of domestic abuse, she became crucial in changing the laws of Sudan. So now Christians wouldn't be killed. Nice. And so seeing, yeah, seeing these women be free, be the, who God has called them to be uh, because my purpose had been being a pastor's wife. I didn't even know God had a purpose for me, you know, and to be free, to be the beautiful woman of God that we were called to be, to flourish and to see them change laws of countries and our own nation to be in the white house. I was just, I, I, for me, that's redemption for me. That's redemption. And yeah. So. And now God is using you all over the world, powerfully impacting women. And my daughter is one of the women you've impacted. And I thank you for that. I'm sorry she had to go through that. It's, it's a, I don't know where she's at in the journey. It's, it's a, it's a long journey, but Hosea too, the wilderness, he doesn't take us to the wilderness to just leave us there. He, he wants to give himself to us. So he did. He's been giving himself to me. I found contentment in him. I found joy in him. Sometimes we buy into the lie that we need a man on earth to love us for us to be worthy. We we do it ourselves. If there's a young, beautiful woman, we're like, why aren't you married yet? It's almost like if, it's almost like if she's not married, then your beauty, what's wrong? Um, but I, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times we're, we believe into the lie that our worth has to come from being married or having a husband who dota like just adores us, but we have that in Christ. Like I feel beautiful. I, few years ago, I had this, I was covered in makeup. People would, I would get angry because people would comment like, why do you have so much makeup on? I was like, you, the thickness of the makeup was crazy. And I would get mad. Like, that's none of your business, you know, whatever. But a few years ago, I was, I'd come out of the shower and I had no makeup on. I always just pass by the mirror. I've got the stretch marks. Don't like my, like, and God's like, no, look at yourself. You're beautiful. And after that, like the way I saw him see me, not afraid of my dark skin or dark hair that my husband had said was so ugly and are my eyebrows, just like with all the, my, my scar and everything, I, I, I walked out of the house without makeup and I was like, oh, you know, so he's, he has given my beauty is not whether a man loves me or not, whether a man adores me or not, or appreciates me or not. I know I'm beautiful because I'm his daughter and, uh, you know, I'm fulfilled, I'm content. And so my hope is that I think as pastor's wives, it's, it's so costly when we, uh, when the marriage falls apart because we lose in a way our identity, we were a pastor's wife. We were the helper. Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, so 
I lost Nagme Abedini. I became Nagme Panahi. Everyone knew me as Nagme Abedini. I was pastor's wife and I changed to not being a pastor's wife. I was, you know, all of this. But I think it's it's good that we're being stripped of all of that because then we find our identity in Christ and we are on a firm foundation that no one can shake. Whether people say, you know, you're amazing or you're horrible, it doesn't matter. Like once you find that um, firm footing in Christ where you're like, I know who I am in him. Like no praise is going to like get me too excited and no, you know, criticism is going to bring me down. Uh, I think it's okay to be stripped of being a pastor's wife or being stripped of what am I now? I've raised kids, you know, uh, you know, I was just sharing at a divorce care class that when you're married, even if it's a hard marriage, you have a goal in your life. Like you have purpose because you're going to raise the kids together. Then you're going to retire together, no matter how bad the marriage is. But when that falls apart, you're like, what, what's my purpose? Like, who am I now? I'm not pastor's wife. I'm not walking this journey with another person. Um, but I think all of that is actually God's amazing love for us when all of that's stripped away, because you get to know Christ in the most intimate way that other people can experience. I mean, look at all of Jesus's best friends, the women that were around him, they were broken women. And you get the intimacy that other people don't get. You get this amazing revelation of his love, of his care, you know, of who he is that other people don't get access to, you know, like we're getting close to resurrection Sunday, who, who the woman were the ones that he revealed it to. Um, and so you get things that even the disciples didn't get revelations of you get, I just can't tell you that the intimacy you get with Christ when you've been stripped of that pastor's wife, um, title, and then you put, you put the title, I am his, like that's on my social media, on my, um, even LinkedIn, which is supposed to be professional or whenever people ask me to speak, I say, they say, what, what would you want? And I say, I am his, I don't want to say I'm a speaker and they end up adding that themselves. But like my identity is not that I'm a speaker or Bible teacher or this or that, or I was an advocate and I've done all of this. My identity is that I belong to him. Like that's it. That's enough. That's so, uh, so and that's what I want to encourage uh pastor's wife is uh like just sit in your brokenness. It's okay. Like it's a process. It might it will take time. We we want to just fast, you know, everything heal fast, but uh it's okay. There's a season of wilderness. Enjoy his presence. It's you're gonna have to depend on him for food, for water, for protection, for everything, for guidance, you know, a fire and a cloud and all of that, you will need to just be like looking at him for every second of every day. But, but once you pass through that wilderness and he will bring you to a place of where, uh, he, you know, where you serve him in the way he has called you to, then you will look and say, wow, that place of wilderness was amazing. I was like, depending on him for like every little thing. I've, there's been times where I've depended on him for every little meal for my kids. And he has come in amazing ways. So that's what I want to encourage. We have Jesus. No one else has Jesus. We have him to go to and be refreshed by and and to have hope in. So, yeah. Well, Nagme, I thank you so much for your authenticity, your love for God, your love for women, and your willingness out of your crazy busy schedule to take time for silently bleeding hope for the pastor's wife. 
And God bless you for every you ministering to God's precious wounded servants. I just, Jen, I just want to say, I appreciate what you do. And I will be praying for you in this um, amazing ministry and for your daughter, who's, I don't know how long she's been on this journey, but uh, it's going to, it's going to, it will get better. And I just thank you for doing this. This is so close to the heart of Jesus. So close. Amen. Sweet woman of God, if you are watching right now and you're wondering, am I in an abusive situation? I just want to encourage you to really be open to the things that Nagme has shared today and pray and seek help. I'm going to leave our email address right here and you're welcome to email us. We will be praying for you and we will, I, I will get back with you as quickly as possible and just know that you are not alone. We love you and our prayers are with you. God bless my friends. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on Silently Bleeding Hope for the Pastor's Wife. It's been a great pleasure to have Nagme Panahi with us. And if you missed part one, I want to encourage you, go back and check it out. God bless my friends.